Hi. How are you? Remember me? Yeah, from the crap table. That's right. From the crap table. <laughs> and you're the big guy with the lucky dice, aren't you? <laughs> oh, jeez. Boy, the two of you kind of look a little, uh, a little down on your luck. Huh? Yeah, if you only knew. Jeez, mm, that's tough. Well, look, I've uh, got a little proposition for you. I'm all ears. I will pay you one million dollars to sleep with your friend here. One million dollars, one night, cash. Just throw that out. You two mull it over and get back to me. I'll be back here. What's there to mull over? I mean, are you going to set that creep straight or should I? I'll handle it. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I'm recording for Contrarian's Corner for Indecent Proposal. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, Julio. Julio, I have a proposal for you. Does it come with a million dollars? It might might say an indecent one. Uh, It does, but here's the kicker. You're just going to get all up in your feelings about it and never actually spend the fucking money on anything good. (laughs) I don't know, man. I'm I'm older and wiser than the average protagonist in a Adrian Lin drama. So I might surprise you. I might take the money and run. I mean, as you should. We are here today to continue on our voyage of sexy thrillers here as we're kind of doing them alternating episodes. Uh, we started off with Jade moving into a decent proposal. And then uh, next month, what do we have? We have Showgirls and what's the the... Rounding out the quartet. Rounding out the quartet is David Cronenberg's Crash. Yes. That's nothing to do with race. (laughs) No, I can't wait for that one because there'll be at least (laughs) one, maybe, listen, that's just thinking that we're doing Crash the Oscar winner. (laughs) And then it'll probably take them like 10 or 15 minutes. Like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? (laughs) I do not remember the sexy car crash. But we are continuing on with this as we are indebted to all the... um, 
pledges and donators for the live stream with the cure on our sliver episode we overperformed what we thought we were going to do in terms of donations so we kind of set this these four benchmarks for us so now we're working our way through them and today we're going back to 1993 a time when woody harrelson was uh, a hunk i couldn't believe it he was you know i'm just used to kind of goofy woody harrelson i mean i was raised on kingpin and you know things of that ilk so I was always used to the comedic actor, Woody Harrelson, a little bit of uh, white men can't jump as well. So I never really saw him as a heartthrob nor a really dramatic actor. But I mean, he's crying for half this movie and he's a uh, sweat inducing hot. There's a small window, I think, of Woody Harrelson as a hunk. And then he got bored, but he worked his way up through cheers. And then, you know, that was those young kid Woody Harrelson you didn't really think of him as a sex symbol just thought he was cute and then he became a man he he did natural born killers and he just kind of took off as a sex symbol for a handful of years before deciding that that was too uh traditional for him he was like no I'm not gonna be a sex symbol I'm gonna be Woody Harrelson I think that around the time he got his Oscar nomination that's when he decided that it was uh there were better things to do with this time than trying to be attractive uh, to the average person. Well, it looks like it's held up pretty well because as recently as 2012, he was named the sexiest vegetarian in the male category by PETA. <laughs> his uh, his peer in the female category, you might ask, Jessica Chastain. I think there's a, a competing levels of beauty, at least through my eyes on that side of the equation. He brings the smolder here and not to be outdone. He's accompanied by Miss Demi Moore, who my God, early to mid 90s Demi Moore just packing heat constantly and then of course they're both put to shame by the the age yet the strong virility and just sexual tyrannosaur that would make mike douglas seem feminine by comparison robert redford uh making his contrarian's debut and uh, not quite alex I, I knew you were gonna make this mistake because you Uh-oh. didn't care for the movie but he has a cameo in avengers endgame oh stop that that <laughs> That's not acting. <laughs> no, I forgot about that. I know I can see him now in that suit in that movie, but no, that. Okay, let me rephrase. He's making his marquee debut here on The Contrarians. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is more. This is more of a of a role for Robert Redford. His hair is one thing. It took me like twenty minutes to get used to just his hairdo in this. That sandy blonde kind of feathered brow that he's got going on, but. We will get to that. We will get to Mr. Redford, Miss Moore, and of course, Mr. Harrelson here shortly. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you're a returning listener, thank you as well. Give us a moment here while we go over what we do here on The Contrarians for any and all new listeners. Uh, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's our battle cry here. We go to the Rotten Tomatoes, the vaunted RT, and find a movie that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. We typically shoot about 85% and above. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll make a case for maybe why it doesn't deserve the high praise that it, it gets, uh, be it how we really feel about it or not. And then, of course, that would mean on the other side of the coin, we'll find a movie, one of those nasty green splotches, a lot of times known as rotten. Uh, we shoot around 30 percent and below going a little bit over that on this one, but uh, we'll make a case for the positive merit in the film. So at 35 percent indecent proposal is going to get the contrarians treatment here in the first half of the podcast where we will. Uh, somehow put a spin of positivity on this film. And in the second portion of the podcast, Julio, we're going to tell him how we really feel. That's correct. When we get to real talk, that's when Alex and I 
tell you and tell each other how we really feel. Although we cheated a little bit before we even started recording. Alex was already talking shit about indecent proposal. <laughs> it's true. Uh, sometimes we just can't help ourselves. Uh, in, in this case, I guess it was kind of. Don't get mad, Alex, but I did think, like I said right before we started recording, I did think there was a chance that maybe you would fall for for this movie's spell. And maybe we'll talk about that uh, in the second half of the show. Yeah, and I can see where you'd get that idea. Now, let me ask, it, w- this was my first time seeing this. Was this your first uh, experience with Indecent Proposal? Uh, somewhat. I, I'd seen parts of it. I, I kind of get the feeling that I sat through most of a heavily edited version a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but that's that's it. So I remember, like, I remember a few things, a few key moments, but really, it's almost as if I was watching it for the first time. Which brings me to my next question. Uh, we kind of had a back and forth about how to watch this film. Uh, how did you end up watching it? You had it on the CBS on demand. Yes, which you know, uh, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, I looked up all the movies that we have coming up on my phone, and I was like, man, this is awesome. Most of them are available to stream for free already. And uh, I could swear Indecent Proposal was one of them. I, I I think it was like on HBO or something. And uh, uh, But then last night when I was getting ready to watch it, it was only available on CBS, which uh, I don't remember which episode, but I've already mentioned that my, my relationship with CBS is not the greatest as far as uh, how much I dislike their app. But... Thankfully, they didn't give me much trouble last night. I was able to just... Yeah, you had... Me- I forget which episode it was on. You had mentioned that. Yeah, they didn't even have commercial breaks. CBS... I mean, the, the thing is, they have their... The app they have for the smart TV is a pain in the ass. It just crashes constantly. And then once it crashes, you just basically have to unplug the TV and let it reset before you can get back to it. So I, I fucking hate it. Um Thankfully, it didn't give me any trouble last night, and and surprisingly, I didn't get any commercials. I thought I would get commercial breaks, but no, it just played the movie straight through. So it was okay. I mean, it certainly beats <laughs> having to pay for indecent proposal <laughs> for a rental, which I guess is yeah. what you had to do. Yeah, you had me beat there. Like uh, online, Google's so helpful with these things because if you just search the name of a movie, it'll tell you what services it's on. And it, as of fucking. 7 p.m. earlier this evening, Central Time, it was still listed on Google as being available on HBO Max, which I have, and Amazon Prime, which I have. Not on HBO Max and on Amazon Prime, it's like one of the gimmicks of, hey, you have to start this service to get it. And I was like, fuck. So I ended Mm -hmm. up having to get it through uh, YouTube, which uh, the one positive I can say is every time I've rented a movie through YouTube, the quality is outstanding. And obviously, there's no commercial breaks. So uh, the transfer here looked great. (laughs) I got to see uh, Woody Harrelson just mowing down on Demi Moore in glorious HD fashion. So uh, no <laughs> felt like you could there. touch those abs. Oh, yeah. And, man, some of those, like, I, I'm curious how long the sex scenes took to film because they were, like, music videos with how many, sh- like, uh, cuts there were. But there was so many different positions, especially in that opening kitchen scene there. I was like, good Lord. <laughs> You got to imagine that Woody Harrelson was a bit intimidated because she was still with Bruce Willis at the time. I mean, that's fucking John McClane. Yeah, those those sex scenes go on for so long that Demi Moore's hair actually gets longer from the beginning to the end. Yeah, she came on as G.I. Jane and left it for ready for striptease <laughs> is what happened. All right, Julio, 35% and decent proposal. Let's hop right in. Let's see what the critics were saying about it. 
All right, so not very nice things, most of the critics. So a whole bunch of uh, green splotches on the Rotten Tomatoes website. I pulled four quotes, uh, starting with Peter Canavese from Groucho Reviews, who says, Would you sell your body for a night to the tune of a million dollars? What makes for five minutes of interesting conversation, alas, does not make for an interesting two-hour movie. Five minutes of interesting conversation? I don't know about that, Alex. I, mm. I can stretch it for at least ten minutes. <laughs> there you go. There, there, we'll get to it, but by the time that uh, Oliver Platt is drafting a contract for Jimmy King, Rob Redford, <laughs> yes, I, I had so many questions and, and just possibilities. I wanted to sit down in that room and, and just talk to them about it. So, yeah, I think that same five minutes of interesting conversation only uh, that's selling the movie short. Uh, next, Walter Chaw, the revered Walter Chaw from Film Freak Central, says, Yes, it's true. In this astonishingly distasteful bit of dreck, there is at the bottom a sappy little romance. There's romance for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's at the bottom. I think it's kind of all over. Next, Quentin Curtis from Independent on Sunday says, I don't know if the film insults women, but it certainly insults its audience. <laughs> Well, Fair enough. I'll, I'll clear it up for you, Curtis. It does insult women. <laughs> Finally, Nick Davis from Nick's Flick Picks says, You're kidding, right? A truly embarrassing spectacle deracinated of the novel's interesting political questions. What is the Indecent Proposal novel about? <laughs> is it a political thriller? Couldn't tell you. I mean, it's... The poster for this movie, I, I kind of gave a teaser of it in our last episode, is definitely the cover of a romantic novel that like Fabio would be on the front of with his chest just bursting out. But I have no idea. Have you read the book, Julio? You've usually read the the text <laughs> on based uh, <laughs> that movies are based on. It, it it this caught me off guard. I did not know that there was a book until I pulled that quote. So uh, ask me again in a couple months, maybe <laughs> then I can tell you. Depending on how much longer this. Uh, Pandemic rages on. Maybe you'll find time to read Indecent I mean, I, Proposal by Jack Inglehard. Uh, if I'm going to be honest, normally I wouldn't because I kind of feel like the movie already did what it could. But I am kind of curious about just, okay, so what is the book like if this is not a faithful representation of the book? <laughs> <laughs> it's about like, you know, the escalating situation in Iran uh, at that time period in Iraq. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Indecent Proposal is based on the book by the same name by, again, Jack Englehard. Uh, the screenplay was by Amy Holden Jones. Any and, all any and all horror aficionados will recognize that name as the director of 1982's Slumber Party Massacre, a fine slasher of the time and a movie that I think has its own wing in the Mattis Rule Hall of Fame because it's not even 80 minutes long it's uh i mean the title gives away what you're in store for it's a slumber party massacre this guy comes in with this big drill and kills a bunch of young girls and a couple young dudes he gets his in the end and we all go home happy so uh, she directed so, that movie and she directed and she wrote in decent proposal so is there is there a comparison between what i'm assuming are the sex scenes in slumber party massacre and the sex scenes here and the decent proposal Oh, no, these are much more artsy, and we don't have anyone on par with the talent of a Harrelson Redford and certainly not a Moore in Slumber Party Massacre. Um, 
she also uh, more, I guess you would say modern in comparison to decent proposal leading into it. Her uh, previous entries were from a writing perspective were mystic pizza and Beethoven, which Beethoven was a VHS that got rented from the Waterville library and worn out for me as a young child. So I have more of a relationship with uh, Miss Jones than I anticipated coming into this. So um, it was fate. She, it was fate. She provides the text behind the, the camera, though, and the director's chair was Adrian Lynn uh, coming into this off of Flashdance, nine and a half weeks, Fatal Attraction and Jacob's Ladder. So he certainly had dipped his toe into the uh, the genre. So he he was uh, he was ready to go. And that's kind of uh, he's like the artsy version of Joe Esserhaus. I guess that he likes to get into these sexually compromising situations and then just write a story about them. But manages, especially on that stretch of uh, ones I just named, manages to consistently get a plus level talent as opposed to <laughs> people from the cast of uh, fucking Saved by the Bell. <laughs> I thought you were talking shit about Linda Fiorentino. She was fine. <laughs> he somehow was able to tame that beast as no one else was really able to work with her but we've already talked about the Farentines. Indecent Proposal is a story of David and Diana Murphy as I like to do from time to time I am going to start this off with the first paragraph of the plot summation on the Wikipedia page uh, David and Diana Murphy are married high school sweethearts living in California Diana works as a real estate agent while David hopes to establish himself as an architect by designing their dream home the couple invest everything they have into David's project, purchasing beachfront property in Santa Monica and beginning construction. But the recession leaves Diana without houses to sell and David without a job. In desperate need of $50,000 to save their land from being repossessed, they travel to Las Vegas, determined to win their money. And this is where Back in Black by ACDC starts playing. <laughs> couple couple notes to hit on. We do. I couldn't believe it. Like. So during this opening here where they're explaining, they're doing the like the Scorsese thing of yep. uh, dual narration where it's not just the the one character narrating. So we get both Woody Harrelson and uh, Demi Moore, at least for about the first half of the movie, adding some narrative tones to it. And who's Pesci and who's De Niro? Mm. Oh, shit. I would say you got to think that uh, Woody Harrelson's Pesci, at least because of stretch there, he's really down on his luck. He's he's more emotional out of the yeah. two. And the part where he gets hit in the head with a baseball bat, it really kind of <laughs> seals the deal. But they're telling the story about how they met. I don't think it was high school. I thought it was college. They talked about they met then when they were freshmen because they were 19 when they got fucking eloped. But <laughs> this isn't even like a 90s. This isn't something that's <laughs> defined by a decade. This is just like an incredible ballsy move from a filmmaker's perspective of taking the actors that you have who are clearly currently in or around 30 years old and not doing anything with them besides changing the hairstyle that they have and then expecting the audience to believe that they're 19 ballsy. And also on top of that fucking Demi Moore got fitted and had to wear braces for this sequence in the film. So th that's like immediate awards bait right there. She went through a physical transformation for it. You can get away with that when you have good actors. And I, that's that's the thing. He he knew the talent that he had in this in this project. Um, not everybody can pull off that kind of flashback. Not everybody can pull off dual uh, voiceovers. So, it, and not everybody can pull off that 
that kitchen sex scene that we were talking about because that's within the first five minutes of the movie. That's when things are still happy. Yeah, the right away we get the feel that it's just, um, you know, your typical young love. He leaves his clothes on the floor and puts his shoes up on the desk. And you think you're in for a certain kind of a movie because fucking to me more just hauls off and hits him to start it. <laughs> and my immediate concern was they have this adorable dog and it had to like run out of the way because they were in a fight in the kitchen. I was very worried something was going to happen to the dog. Go ahead and spoil it for you. The dog makes it. It's adorable the whole time. <laughs> I hope it lived a wonderful life because that young man deserved it. Um, So she hits him and that, of course, leads to sex, which I mean, yeah. If your lover ever hits you, that's typically where it's going to go. At least if it's a female on male hit, uh, I can't justify it the other way around. Uh, and then also like his underwear ends up somehow on the, the kettle and catches on fire. And it leads to basically the joke being that he's fucking her. And she's like, your underpants are on fire. And he's like, oh, you have no idea. So an entire range, like an earthquake was coming in, reading the seismograph of emotions here and just tones that this movie shifts in. And you got to keep up with it. Yeah, this was the opposite of uh, of when we were doing Jade, where Jade kind of made us wait for any sort of sexy stuff. Uh, here's just right off the bat. Th- they know that we were... Because the poster is just them about to do it. So within the first 10 minutes of the movie, here you go. They're having sex in the kitchen. Are you happy now? Can we move on to the, the adult part of the movie? <laughs> I, I appreciate it, especially because... Uh, when things go south, this movie revealed itself to me as a cautionary tale about adulthood in general. I know I've mentioned it before on the show, but basically, uh, now that I have a mortgage, that's kind of a fear that I live with and that I will live with until the mortgage is paid off, which is like, oh, yeah. what happens if I don't pay the mortgage? <laughs> and so th- this was just terrifying to me. I was I was just getting uh, anxiety for them just the idea that oh yeah they invested all their money on this property and now they're gonna lose it because they can't pay for it (laughs) along with just the other thing which is that the cautionary tale about young love and how yeah it's very easy to say oh i love you and i will love you forever when you're hot and everything is going well but then once things go south that's when things really get sticky and that's where relationships really uh that's when you see if a relationship is gonna go the distance so Mm -hmm. uh yeah, that, that's to me, that's when the movie gets, you know, that's when really things get cooking when when once they go to Vegas. So, yeah, and they're broke, like we mentioned. Their lawyer, I, I believe I got that correct. Their lawyer is uh, Jeremy Green, played by Oliver Platt, who is a friend of Woody Harrelson's uh, David's from, I think, college, as they established at some point in the movie. So it's not like he's doing it pro bono. For, it's his friend that he's helping out and just kind of advising on his monetary issues and whatnot. Uh, but always great to see the king back on the Contrarians podcast. Yeah, he wakes her up in the middle of the night, and it was really the only thing that was missing was uh, him just saying Vegas, baby, because she's like, <laughs> "Where are we going?" And then, of course, it cuts to a shot of the Vegas skyline. And uh, I fuck, what movie did we do in the past year that had the Vegas skyline shot? And it just uh, made me... Hangover Three. No, that wasn't when the pandemic started. We we recorded that together. Hangover Three. Been... No. Yeah. No, Hangover Three was. Uh... Was a, a a remote recording? Oh my god, we've been doing it that long. <laughs> yep, Jesus. <laughs> well, like that, and I'm glad you caught that because you know exactly where I'm going. Just made me so hungry for yep shit to clear up. Because God, I want to go back to Vegas. 
And but, I, but that leads to my question, actually, Alex. I want I Robert I was, Redford to buy a night of sex with me so I can just spend all his money. <laughs> but I do have a question because you, out of the two of us, you're the one with Vegas experience. So does it happen like that? Because they get there and within the first two hours, they pay $25,000. How how common is that to make $25,000 uh, as soon as you, you hit the ground, as soon as you hit the, I guess, the slot machines and the roulette? If you know how to play, I suppose it could happen. For me, I just I enjoy going for the free booze and people watching and the incredibly attractive waitresses that flirt with me, so I'll tip them more. That's what I go for. Um, so the most I've ever won was like $20 on a digital blackjack hand. But I could see, in this case, a couple as ambitious and thriving and hungry as David and Diana I could see them finding a way, willing it into existence. And I have seen people, you know, just pull the lever once and bring like fucking fireworks and all the pageantry happens around them. So I, I guess that's the point of Vegas. You just never know where one quarter will take you. To me, the alternative was not necessarily that, that, oh, well, you know, they just, they're just lucky, at least for the first two hours they're in Vegas. But to me, it was more like, is this part of the, part of the con? Part of the con of being in Vegas, right? I mean, we were just referencing Casino not too long ago. And and the whole point of that movie is that the Nero is there to make sure that the house always wins. So is it that the Casino was kind of making them win so that they would lose harder? <laughs> you know what I mean? To me, it just it's always uncanny when I see people winning consecutively you know because somebody that wins at the slot machines once i'm like yeah that that makes sense but uh here when you see that lady that keeps rolling sevens i'm like what the fuck's going on that's 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 insane that's that's such a completely different world than the one i live in you know to to put a bet on yeah this lady's gonna roll sevens again here's five thousand dollars to that <laughs> that is crazy that's well that's the trick of vegas or atlantic city or new orleans you know places with very publicized and a, a tourist level of uh, casinos and gambling you and this something this movie exposes is that underneath it all it looks like david and diana have a, a small if not problematic gambling addiction because they can't leave yep. and that's that's the trick about these cities where there is these big high profile situations of legalized gambling is knowing when to walk away my two stories about that are when i turned 21 myself my father and my college buddy sammy sam Went to Las Vegas for a weekend. It was awesome. It was great. Um, and we were at Bally. No, not Bally's. We might have been at Caesars or uh, MGM. Sammy Sam kind of broke off and did his own thing. Me and my dad were just kind of walking around sightseeing, doing it. Because Sam Sam knew how to gamble. Sam knew how to play poker and shit. Me and my dad just did like digital and slots and stuff. And we were walking around just like sipping our drinks and stuff. And we came around this corner and we saw Sam in one of the high roller, like basically in Vegas in the casinos, the more high roller tables are up on like a pedestal and there's like behind a velvet rope and you have to go up there and we just, God bless him. We just turn the corner. We see Sam. He doesn't see us, but we see him doing like the thing where he's like got his chips in front of him and he's running his fingers through him. And we're like, we're not going to fuck with him. He's in the zone right now. <laughs> and then about a half hour later, we ran into him and he's like, man, I was up high and I gambled it all away. And we're like, God bless. And then uh, on the other side, the discipline side of it, when I was in New Orleans this, for the last WrestleMania I attended in 2018, went to, um, I think it's the Hera Casino they have there down off of uh, Bourbon. But 
went there and a bunch of the wrestlers were there and I kind of was doing my own thing, gambling with my friends and we could see from afar uh, a wrestler by the name of No Way Jose and he was with a member of a tag team called The Revival and I think they were at Roulette which is going to play into where we're going next but they, the way they celebrated, I would have believed they had wagered their entire Wrestlemania check on (laughs) the hand and they immediately were like we watched them and they immediately cashed out and they're like, we're not risking anything else. And they walked over, you know, a la uncut gems to the cash out window and got their bags and left. <laughs> Unfortunately for David and Diana, the fucking with the roulette does not work out as well. Now, again, <laughs> I've never played roulette. Uh, to me, it seems like they, it seems as an impossibility. There can be any strategy to that. I don't know about you. And uh, no, but I guess also not being a, an expert, I guess you're playing the odds and the odds are 50-50, right? If you're just going red or or black, if you're not going to do any further specifics, you have a 50% shot of winning. And I guess that yeah. could be appealing to, to someone. I guess so, yeah. But they they end up putting, what do they have? Like $4,100 is what they end up with. They put it all on red, ends up being black. I don't know what Demi Moore's strategy was because she reaches for the money after they call it. <laughs> it's not like there's not literally hundreds if not thousands of security guards that are just going to tackle her if they try to leave with the casino's money anyway uh but they're broke after one good night there where they have sex on a pile of cash which to be honest looks about like 200 bucks just in ones uh but they (laughs) their luck runs out and the luck uh, some might say picks back up because they wander to one of these high roller tables where we see robert redford this is not the first time we've met him he ran into Demi Moore in the shops that kind of border some of the casinos there. And immediately it was just like just carnal intentions with the eye contact these two made. But yeah, he, she doesn't know was, who uh, he is. He was so aroused when he saw her stealing chocolates. I mean, as any grown man would be, just thinking to yourself how dirty of a girl that is. Those chocolates are going to melt in no time in her purse. Her phone is going to be ruined. <laughs> But he makes a pass at her and it really goes nowhere. But she sees him and immediately they recognize each other from, you know, a little bit earlier. And uh, we find out that he is a billionaire, a very prominent, almost celebrity level billionaire named John Gage, which, man, that that's that is a male porn star name if I have ever heard one. (laughs) But how do we learn this, Julio? Who who gives us the exposition on John Gage? Did my my notes say, and you patrons will see it when I post it. It just says Billy Bob Thornton. Five <laughs> question marks. Did you know for sure that that was him at the beginning, or did it take you a moment to really you know make sure that that was him? I had seen on the uh, Wikipedia, the the IMDb, and looking over this that his name was on there, so I knew he was coming in. It's his name is Day Tripper like his credit. I didn't know if that was the name of the character or not. So I was like kind of half expecting him to have like a full part in it, but he just kind of shows up and he's got a cool earring. And I mean, he's Billy Bob and all his glory is like, no shit. He's a billionaire. He, he hams up the Southern accent to almost a, you know, shtick degree. This is where uh, Woody Harrelson learns the lesson that you would think everybody would know by, by that age, but which is you do not, loan your wife to someone like Robert Redford. <laughs> he just innocently goes like, sure, honey, go hang out with the with the attractive older billionaire uh, 
while I stand here broke and miserable. And, and Billy Bob Thornton calls him out on it. He says, do you think she's going to come back? <laughs> uh, and he, I think he says something like, I'm just bullshitting you. And <laughs> as soon as we enter Billy Bob, we exit him as Sir Day Tripper is not to be seen again in this movie. I guess the idea being that uh, Gage used Diana as kind of a lucky charm and he quickly finds out that poker cards are not her game. And so he asks if she likes dice. They end up going to play craps and she succeeds with a million dollar throw. She kisses the dice and throws a seven and it was a million dollar bet. And we get the uh, the awesome shot of the I guess the manager of the casino with his cup of coffee just crushes it in his hand when he sees it lands on seven. <laughs> and, and uh, like the best part of this is there's this huge crowd gathered around. And for a few seconds, we don't see where the fuck Woody Harrelson is. <laughs> It would have been great if the camera like pans out and he's in the back and he can't get to the front like uh, Wayne in Wayne's World 2 when he's trying to get to Cassandra. Hey, my girlfriend's up there. <laughs> he is so fucking naive, too, because when she comes back, he hugs her. He's like, good job, honey. <laughs> like, do you realize that Robert Redford is in the process of seducing your wife? It's like everybody when 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 the whole dice throw is happening, everybody around Robert Redford is aroused. You keep getting like, the close-up people because that's that's something that Redford definitely knows, and that is that there's no better aphrodisiac than money. And he just basically, he plays his cards perfectly. He gets Demi Moore in a situation where any of us would fall for it. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you get to play with a million dollars. That's not yours. But for a few seconds, you get to pretend that it's yours, that you're, you're a part of this. Yeah, Woody Harrelson seems completely oblivious to what's going on here. Him and Demi Moore, too, because, you know, obviously this is too early in the movie to say that she is actively trying to hook up with Robert Redford. But it's one of those things that, as an adult, you kind of learn to walk away from dangerous situations. And she doesn't. Neither of them do. You know, Harrelson and her. Because I guess if not, there wouldn't be a movie. Woody Harrelson doesn't realize what's happening until it's too late. That he he's so blissfully naive, as you said. It plays out perfectly too with his capabilities as an actor. Uh, but he says, you know, you help me win this money, stay another night. It's all on me. He gets him this awesome suite that's so '90s decor, like black on black. It's absolutely fantastic. He ends up buying the aforementioned dress uh, i don't know if we mentioned it but the film does you know, when he first meets demi Moore, i guess it's not a meet cute it's more of a meet seductive and he sees this dress he's like it's really nice you should get it and she's like i can't afford it and that's where it comes in here it comes all gift wrapped and everything and woody harrelson's like wow this is a nice dress how do you know you liked it <laughs> and she you know says ah don't don't worry about it and it leads to them spending the evening with them playing pool a very very they're essentially pulling their dicks out and measuring them with this game of pool. It's the most phallic measuring game of pool I've ever seen put to film. But there's no competition, though. That's the. <laughs> oh, no. no. I mean, Woody, he, he doesn't stand a chance. It, and it's great. I mean, this is just you get to see Redford at his best as he kind of, you know, dances circles around this couple. They They think. Woody Harrelson did more think that they're actually taking a moral stance. They think that they have the high ground in this conversation when really Robert Refer is just going in and out, like poking holes in their defenses and exposing them uh, because this is where he, this is where the movie happens. This is where he tells Woody Harrelson. He, 
he cre- he offers an indecent proposal here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's that's all this movie was missing is Woody Harrelson saying, "Well, sir, I think that's a bit of an indecent proposal." <laughs> but basically the proposal being, you know, a million dollars for a night with your wife. And it's especially once you know, even if it is your first time watching the movie, you know they're going to say yes because Otherwise, there wouldn't be a movie, right? So uh, that makes it even more delicious that they act so outraged <laughs> when he first brings it up. Because you know that they, eventually they're going to go through with it. But no, they mean more and Woody Harrelson, they, they're just indignant and they tell him to go to hell. And first it's hypothetically, right? And then Redford goes, okay, well, you're just reacting this way because it's, it's hypothetical. But no, let's say that it's it's really, it, it's really happening. And, and they're still saying no, but it's... You know, they're such good actors because Woody Harrelson hesitates for just fractions of a second before getting mad or before shutting Redford down, which is, already tells you that, well, in the back of his mind, he's kind of considering it, and it, which I think makes the whole thing more interesting. So it's out there. Robert Redford, Mr. Gage, offers a million dollars for one night alone with Diana. And, you know, Woody and uh, Demi both get in a really spirited and emotional, I'd tell you to go to hell. And <laughs> Robert Redford's like, okay, well, then that's that. Uh, and he asks for a dance and they say <laughs> no. I, I mean, how baller is that? Like, that's that's that guy's life. He just is like, <laughs> he just offered this man. He's like, I'll, I'll pay you to let me have sex with your wife. And then he's like, fuck you. And he goes, all right, well, let me dance with her. <laughs> But he knows, <laughs> he knows he has them because they never walked away. And to me, that's it's such a perfect detail, right? Because they get all mad and whatever, they could storm off, but they never do. <laughs> Woody Harrelson doesn't even put down the the pool cue; <laughs> he still wants to play. So they tell him, "No, no dancing, go away." And then it shows them, you know, both having trouble sleeping later that night. And they kind of end up talking about and joking about their previous sex lives or excuse me, their previous sexual partners and what it would entail and what it would all mean. And, you know, how the fallout would be of it. And they basically come to the conclusion that, yeah, we could do this for the money and never have to talk about it again, which is the correct stance to take on the matter. And (laughs) they end up uh, calling Jimmy King. Uh, Oliver Platt, his lawyer, to kind of discuss what's been offered to them. And he's in the meeting with someone currently. He's are they screenwriters or music writers? Whatever the case is, screenwriters. They're talking about a star is born, but casting Diana Ross and Billy Ray Cyrus in it, which (laughs) that's like I wrote that note immediately. I was like, good God, could you imagine (laughs) what the world would have been like with a star is born? You know, forget your Gaga's and your Cooper's. Ross and Cyrus is where it's at. But of course, this leads to uh, Oliver Platt, Jeremy Green taking the call on speakerphone first from Woody Harrelson, who explains, hey, this rich dude offered me a million dollars to have sex with my wife. And it's actually a really, really funny scene because uh, Oliver Platt's like making these faces to the guys. And then, you know, when he hears what they're talking about, he's like, excuse me. It's like, can you hold for a minute and just let me take this call? And then it's like, he's going to go into his office, but he just kind of sidesteps and picks the phone up. So it's not on speaker anymore. And he's like, I could have got you $2 million. And the guys that he's meeting with both stand up and they're like, we don't need to see anything more. You're our guy. I, I thought this scene was actually genuinely funny. It's really good. It, it, especially because it keeps playing with our expectations of what the Oliver Platt character is like. 
and the movie does this through its entire runtime because so you met him and you kind of think that he's his least it, in the way that he's acting when he first gets a call from Woody Harrelson you, you think yeah he doesn't give a shit about these guys really but then when he hears about the indecent proposal he looks shocked and so so then you're like oh i was misjudging this guy he actually cares he's shocked he he has morals he's like no you can't do that right but then when he takes the call he's like dude i could have gotten you two million dollars <laughs> oh no he is his leasable he's been in the professional wrestling industry man of course he, he's the one holdout whenever you know I, i've said for the past fucking i don't know 20 30 episodes we've done now whenever things get back to normal so any day now but Whenever that does happen, Oliver Platt's last holdout that we need to get at one of these pro wrestling conventions so he can sign stuff as Jimmy King. That's that's all that remains. He's like a legitimate, credible actor. Like the idea of like someone calling him up and the WWE being like, hey, pal, uh, do you want to come work access for us this week? He's like, how did you get this fucking number? Leave me alone. Um, so so before we get into maybe my favorite scene of the movie, which is the, the whole hashing out the contract. but. There's no wrong answer here, Alex, but I'm just curious how you took this this negotiation between Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore when they're in bed and they finally decide to do it. Who made the decision to you, like having watched the whole sequence now? So the way I took it, and it's a masterclass in acting and also screenwriting, is the way they leave it is they both think they're in agreement because they think the other one is, but really no one is in agreement about it. They're... They think they're being clear in their communication, but they're being anything but. So you think that neither of them wanted to do it, but both of them did it because they thought the other one wanted them to do it? Precisely. Okay, see, I read it the other way around, which is beautiful. That's part of the magic of this movie, because it just gives us enough to to be right either way. That's why I said there's no wrong answer, because I think that you're right. The, the way the conversation plays and the way they acted... I guess the one thing that we know for sure is that neither they were not in agreement. They just thought they were. But to me, it really sounded like they both wanted to do it. Not because, you know, it's not that Woody Harrelson wanted to pimp out his wife or that Demi Moore wanted to like have sex with Robert Redford. They both wanted the million dollars. And so they, they were just waiting for permission from the other person. Either way works. Either way, it's, you know, the whole point is just that they, as much as they talked about it, they did not communicate well enough anyway, <laughs> which just goes back to, you know, it's young love. They're really not. I think that uh, a couple in their 50s or 60s presented with the same dilemma would have a very different conversation and they would really hammer out the details. <laughs> uh, but not not the case here with uh, with Woody and me. They they leave it fairly vague, but then they both kind of give each other like this reassuring look and then they wake up the next day and like, well, we've made our decision. Today's the day. <laughs> And you want to talk about something played perfectly for comedic value. Uh, the fact that they actually have like a litigation with yeah. Oliver Platt and Robert Redford, like going over a contract. I mean, this is literally prostitution. I guess they're in uh, <laughs> Nevada where it's legal, but which actually, no, it's not legal in Las Vegas. It's legal in other parts of Nevada, but whatever the case. Now I'm getting into the semantics here, but they have like this actual just conversation. They're going through the clauses of this fucking contract that's written for this handsome, virile old man to bang this young lady. I love this scene just because it opens the door for so many things that live on long after the movie's over. They just stay with you. I found myself 
thinking about what else was in that contract. Because once you're putting it in writing, and once you're basically the, the scene establishes that Oliver Platt is a very good lawyer because he's covering all the bases, right? What happens if he can't perform? Well, he Woody Harrelson still gets the money. What happens if he dies while they're having sex? Well, they can't get in trouble for that, and so on. So there has to have been pages and pages of you, you know, how many things can go wrong with sex, you know, sex with a stranger. What happens if one of them gets an STD? What happens if she gets pregnant? Is he wearing a condom? Is she? Is he not wearing a condom? Is does anything go in this night, or are, are they like? Does that contract stipulate that you know? Well, no, you can only do certain things. You know, you can go up to like the R rating, but you can't go X. Or can Redford go like as many times as he wants during the night, or you know, is it just like once and and that's it? Or you know, the memoir has a limit of like three times. Uh, there is the amount of things that Oliver Platt would have to cover. The possibilities for this encounter are almost endless. So, so to me, the idea, once you introduce the idea of this contract out there that Robert Redford admired and signed, it's just, uh, I love it. To me, I could just watch an entire movie of, of Robert Redford and Oliver Platt just kind of, it, it would be like a one-act play where they're just discussing the contract in detail for 90 minutes. Like a really quirky indie film where it's just in the movies in one setting the entire time. Yeah, it's just them going over the contract. It's just two couches, uh, and a and a table with a bottle of whiskey. So the deal is done. They come out and they everyone's kind of amicable about it, and off goes Gage with Diana. And David's just kind of like nodding. He's like, "All right, this is what I've chosen. This is the path we've taken." And he goes up to his room and. Uh, he ends up going kind of stir crazy just thinking about it. I guess he's thinking about her with another man or something and has a complete breakdown and runs. Oh, he's on the casino floor when this happens, actually, not his room. And he goes up to their hotel room and he starts banging on the door and almost like a, a precursor to Murph. Don't let me go. He's like, <laughs> D, it's me. D. <laughs> then the maid answers the door and is like, what the fuck is this crazy white guy going on about? <laughs> He's like, where'd they go? And she just says, up, up, up. And in amazing timing, he gets up to the roof of the hotel as they're like departing from the helipad. And he's like running to the helipad and does like the, uh, he was one step away from doing the Fossbender. I have no shame where he falls <laughs> down on his knees and screams to the heavens. Uh, all ridiculous and also adds to like the entire, I have the note here that Robert Redford with that GTA drip, because it really feels like he's a GTA character. You know, he comes in, swoops this woman up with money, has a, a private helicopter that lands on his yacht out, you know, in some probably international waters somewhere where he can get away with whatever the, whatever the fuck he wants. Has a white suit, has this fucking geisha <laughs> outfit for her and, uh, you know, goes up and explains to her that she goes up, excuse me, to the bow of the yacht and explains, you know, that she's kind of apprehensive, but, you know, it was a decision that we both made. And Robert Redford kind of now is just telling her, you know, if you were my wife, I would have never let you go. Uh, whatever happens tonight, it will be what you choose. And then in the ultimate swerve, we've seen a lot of Harrelson and more action. You think you're going to finally get to see Robert Redford's vinegar strokes, but nope, we just fade to black. And honestly, for the duration of the film, it's just left up to the viewer to decide really what happened. But that's maybe the most genius move of the movie. I mean, if if I'm getting, being honest, I was disappointed at the time because, fuck, that's 
that's what you've sold me, right? That's I want to see what happens. What exactly did he buy with a million dollars? But then it really puts you in Woody Harrelson's headspace because we don't know, which means that we can we are left to imagine the worst. <laughs> and that yeah. is that's a feeling that can only be achieved if you fade to black <laughs> and don't tell us what happened. And then we just cut to Woody Harrelson crying alone in his hotel room. Uh, he's like turning the lights off and on. It's a real sad sack scene, which again, you know, trying to be sensitive to here to what the movie is trying to portray as his emotional state. If I had a night to myself in Las Vegas with $1 million. <laughs> and I this, know my this, wife is out having sex with some other dude. This would have played. This would have started like the hangover. Like this scene should have been Woody Harrelson waking up in a hotel suite with like a car crashed through it. And, you know, just strippers everywhere. You got fucking cocaine and booze and Neil Diamond is passed out like on the couch. Uh, it's just absolutely preposterous here that he just spent the night just circle jerking, listening to, you know, I just died in your arms tonight all night long. And he's teary eyed and she comes in. And then right away they get into like some war paint sex where he just like rubs her lipstick on her face. <laughs> sex cures all. I guess they have that type of relationship that's just built upon how good they fuck. So anytime the conversation is about to steer in an uncomfortable direction, let's have sex. Yeah. Thankfully, or at least we can assume that uh, Redford didn't leave any hickeys <laughs> so that even when they were having their makeup sex, Harrelson was not triggered by anything. I don't know what it takes to do a good Robert Redford impression, but that's like on the cutting room floor was Woody Harrelson trying to talk to... <laughs> To me, more mid-coitus, like Robert Redford. <laughs> yeah. Did you see all the presidents, men? You like that? <laughs> they get back home to California, and it turns out their property was bought out from under them, that uh, they had been foreclosed on, the property, and the bank had seized it. And in the window that opened up, the property was bought out from under them. They don't quite know who yet, but the we tensions do. at... Oh, I mean, if you've seen a movie before, you do. Uh, the tensions at home are brewing. Woody Harrelson, despite having a million dollars now, is way more occupied with finding out if the man that his wife had sex with was uh, better in the bedroom, in the boudoir, than he was. Maybe if he was 15, I would understand this. But again, he's got a million dollars. <laughs> he should be trying to advance his career as an architect. But I guess, again, that's the foundation. These guys have been together since they were 19 years old. They have matured with each other and so much of that has been through sex and so naturally that's like a, a very holy area that they have a very sacred area so they get into a fight uh where he's just you know did you fuck him was he good and i i would say this is definitely to me more oscar scene where she breaks down wearing kitchen gloves and just saying you know i could tell you anything and you wouldn't believe me what do you want me to tell you it's very passionate and um would you agree this is her Oscar clip? Um, I do, even though, to me, that was, I think in my notes even, I have it as Woody Harrelson's clip. Because he is, it, it, they're, they're both Oscar clips, but they're on different ranges, right? She is kind of keeping it together as much as she's crying and breaking down and everything. And, and Harrelson is just going all out. He's just screaming and, you know, accusing her of horrible things. It's, uh, it's a great scene. And Woody bangs on the door and, you know, in rage. And then he ends up just kind of storming off. 
time passes and you know with each day you would think these things are getting better but the tensions are mounting more and more diana through one of her friends at the real estate firm is able to find out that gage bought the property that they had uh plan to build their dream home on and so diana actually ends up ambushing gage at a business lunch that he had just cursing him out for buying their land and you know he kind of chases her out the door and she says you know i want it back and he's like you can't afford it and she's like i hate you and doesn't he say no you want to hate me it's like <laughs> damn got her <laughs> and then he offers her a job yes this guy yes. is just Robert Redford balls of steel the entire movie. It just, I mean, I guess it kind of comes with territory. You know, when you have that much money, then of course you just grow to be this supremely confident person. But yeah, he is the, the entire time. Every time that they have a scene with Robert Redford, you can just see that Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson are out of their league, not as actors, but their characters. You know, he's just so much more experienced than them. He has so much more control over not just his emotions, but their emotions. He's decided from the moment that he saw Demi Moore, he decided that he wanted Demi Moore. And he's just been playing the game. He's been planting the seeds and making his moves. It's just that as much as it sucks to see their marriage crumble, there's also this really weird satisfaction at seeing what like a, what an expert mastermind does. Like, you know, how Redford, how his plan comes together. When you see a, it's like a, you know Hannibal and the A team. He, you know, you love it when a when a plan comes together. That's that's really what this is. Man, imagine this movie if the title card didn't hit until the first reel was over, like the A team from 2010. <laughs> Indecent proposal, <laughs> and that would of course come after the post coitus, where Robert Redford lights up a cigar and says, "I love it when a plan comes together." <laughs> <laughs> Diana goes back home and explains to David, you know, I saw Gage today and they end up fighting and he just thinks, you know, y'all are fucking and my notes say, why the fuck are they fighting? They're rich. Like, I, I don't understand that. You know, this plays off of uh, one of my favorite Catherine O'Hare lines ever from Orange County, where Colin Hanks says to her mom, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. And she says, oh, grow up. Yes, it does. And <laughs> he's like, both you and dad have money and you're both miserable. But, but I think that's the point of the movie, which I appreciate, which is that these two, they don't know anything. They haven't really lived. So they can't appreciate how much money can do for your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? This like, movie, yes. They're Preach. so focused. Yeah, they're so focused on their relationship and just on, on the fact that it's no longer pure, that they are they're missing the point. And that's why Robert Redford's winning. You know, if they had a little bit more experience, a little more you know street smarts yes you're right they would realize you know what it's a million dollars let's go ahead and buy another piece of land and just make our lives better and yes we can we can just get past this let's just not let's remind each other that we're not going to talk about this anymore but but they can't because they're, they're kids and they this was probably the one serious relationship they had in their lives and they thought that love conquered yes. all and you know they they're just not cynical enough to survive Robert Redford meddling w in their lives. Uh, and, you know, exactly I mean, right. Yeah, fair enough, because that's that's what the movie's about. The movie's about them having this journey and coming out the other side. You're exactly right. I've been realizing that as we've been recording Contrarian's Corner here. This movie is a cautionary tale about marrying someone when you're fucking 19. Because you're going to be... <laughs> 
you're only going to be 19 with that person for the rest of your life. And you're just going to be trapped in these juvenile, young, jealous, bullshit mindsets about love and whatnot. I mean, this is kind of like if Jack and Rose had made it together, this would have been, you know, their story afterwards. I, I guess that was revolutionary road, but you, you know what I mean? It's a, uh, I did think, uh, it's funny that you bring up Titanic because I did think that Redford and his, uh, I guess his driver, his bodyguard or whatever. Shackleford. Had, yes, Shackleford. They had a, 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 they had a little bit of a Cal and, uh, fuck, what's, what's Cal's bodyguard? His manservant? What's his name? Uh, Lovejoy. Lovejoy. I thought they had a yes. bit of a Cal and Lovejoy relationship, only just refined. You know, Cal was kind of a thug, but if he, if he had aged, maybe, uh, uh, he would have turned out to be like a Robert Redford type. Uh, but yeah, I can see. I did think it was weird that Robert Redford's last line was, I hope you enjoy your time together. <laughs> My next note here is just all caps with four exclamation points. Rip Taylor. Uh, as Rip Taylor shows up, he's Demi Moore's boss. I couldn't find really anything, but this would have been in the wake of Wayne's World 2 which utilized him. I mean, it's fucking Rip Taylor. People know who he is, but it's not like he had a real heavy presence in, you know, big movies. So when I saw him, I was just like, fuck yeah. And I, I guess maybe riding the wave of momentum from that, from his appearance in Wayne's world. Cause I couldn't really find anything in my research of, you know, um, reasoning for it. Maybe him and Adrian Lynn were close, but I was about to say Adrian I- Lynn, big Wayne's world fan. I mean, Wayne's World 2 is the greatest comedy of all time, so I don't blame him at all. (laughs) Rip Taylor, as Mr. Langford, is the boss of Diana at the real estate firm. And he says, uh, the recession's over. Money bag's over here. You know, he wants to buy a house. And he says, no price is too high. Immediately, Demi Moore sees who it is and says, I can't do it. And Rip Taylor tells her, you do or you're fired. So (laughs) this isn't extortion, per se. This is just like trying to think of the right word. I can, maybe co- maybe coercion maybe that's the right word for it is it's kind of using it's strong arming you know if you want to keep working you got to help help me out here but it's all part of gage's plan because they go and look at all these properties together and you know he's constantly flirting with her he does the classic hand on the lower back move and then uh, is this where we get his oscar clip eventually uh what they end up going to his home or his property already already owns and he tells a story about a woman on a train. That's that's what this leads into, correct? Yes, I think we have like a, a a break in between this first, like let's go hunting for homes, and then his because here he takes her to her to his house, and he's like, "What's missing?" And she's like, "Well, it's missing this and this and this." And then he goes, "No, it's missing you." <laughs> oh, that's right. And uh, and then the next time he brings her over, he's got dogs. Because she said that he was missing dogs, I think. And he's like, Oh, yeah, you like? puppies. And I was like, Yeah, the power of dogs. That's that's really because that's the that's the time that she finally succumbs of her own will, not because there's a paycheck involved. Uh but in between these two scenes, she completely breaks it off with uh with Woody Harrelson. Mm-hmm. Because uh we have that scene where Woody Harrelson is now I guess he's he's staying at uh, Oliver Platt's apartment and uh Demi Moore is on the phone with Oliver Platt saying that Woody Harrelson can keep the money. And Woody Harrelson is like, well, I don't want the money. And Oliver Platt's like, well, I'll take the money if nobody wants it. <laughs> yes. But I like I like that scene mainly because, once again, it plays with our expectations of what Oliver Platt is like. 
you expect this sort of a cynical, sleazy lawyer, but you can tell that he does care for his friends and he cares mm-hmm. for their relationship. He, for for a moment there, he's actually trying to get them to work things out. And then when he realizes that it's hopeless, then he's like, all right, well, can I take the million dollars at least? So that was that was a cool moment. So as you mentioned, Julio, yeah, he takes her back to his place to show her these adorable pups that he got. Uh, the way he links up with her from there is to make ends meet. Diana had taken up teaching citizenship classes, which it <laughs> shows- she doesn't have a million dollars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so in a scene that's tantamount to stand and deliver, Demi Moore is in front of this group of young to old trying to get their citizenship and it's a very much how do i reach these kids type thing because they're acting like high schoolers when a substitute teacher's in they're all kind of talking to themselves you know using their different native tongues and you know uh talking about where they're from and that type of thing and it it's absolutely preposterous i mean we we've dealt with citizenship classes here on the contrarians before uh going way back to our here comes the boom episode this is a completely different world to be fair, this movie was about 15 years before that, but uh, whatever the case. In comes Robert Redford. People think he's the president, uh, I guess. <laughs> he looks presidential. Clinton. Yeah, Clinton would have been president then. So from the right angles, I could see someone believing that. And he comes in and says a lot of nice things and a lot of complimentary things. And it leads to uh, rounds of Ooh, or just like applaud from applause from the uh, classroom. And this is what leads into Robert Redford's Oscar scene, as I had mentioned a few moments ago, in which he explains to Diana kind of the idea of lost love and this long story, which from what I read on my notes was uh, almost a verbatim uh, dialogue from Citizen Kane, of all things. What? John Gage's tale of his encounter with an attractive woman on New York City subway was taken nearly verbatim from a similar speech in Citizen Kane. That's the the note I have here. So it has so, been many years since I've seen Citizen Kane, so I cannot confirm nor deny that right now. Dude, that's that is amazing. So so what you're telling me is the implication is that that Robert Redford's character is seducing Demi Moore by telling a story from Citizen Kane. It's not even telling her a true story. <laughs> We don't know. We don't know. There's that a lot about Gage. We, we don't know. But w- would you say this was his Oscar scene? I kind of took that uh, and ran with it. But do you agree with that? I agree. I Definitely. Because it's the one moment in the movie, save for, I guess, the very end. But this is the moment in the movie where we get to see a different angle where he, where he's suddenly vulnerable. Uh, and it works whether he's been sincere or whether he is using Citizen Kane <laughs> to pretend to have... Uh, a sensitive side either way i mean he's it's just this just single shot of him with eventual cuts to demi moore just being moved and falling for him and i i think that it's uh there's that thing that you need in the movie because you establish him as a boss player he knows what to do but but that doesn't mean that you fall in love with him you're still rooting for demi and woody to to figure things out and so mm-hmm. you need the scene to be on Demi Moore's side when she falls for him. You need to be okay with that. So, and yeah, you need an actor like Redford to pull it off. Yeah, my note here says, Bob ain't such a bad guy. At least that's what it leads you to believe. <laughs> yep. But now they're like dating, like old <laughs> Hollywood style, because Demi's wearing like these white dresses and shit and looking extremely regal and fancy. I mean, shit escalates so quickly. 
uh we're my notes here i think i've got four or five lines left and <laughs> this is where <laughs> diana and gage start dating and then they show up you know to the some jazz lounge or wherever they're going to eat studio 54 <laughs> woody harrelson stumbles in it's raining of course and he's in the, like a suit but he's soaking wet because it's raining and he's just completely sauced and looks like a total loser he tries to take a swing at gage and misses i, I mean for all the compliments we've paid to this movie so far, and even the scene is still masterfully acted, this scene in particular felt incredibly out of place to what we had seen thus far. It's, uh, I think I was just a bold so choice. <laughs> I was just so amused by by Woody Harrelson missing that punch that I I was just okay with it. I, I I've never seen anybody miss a punch that badly. You know, where you don't just miss the punch, but you just keep swinging all the way to the ground. And then you pass out because they have to, uh, what's his name? Not Lovejoy, but, you know. Shackleford. Shackleford has to drive him home. And Woody is just, it's out. <laughs> it's 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 crazy. But, I, I mean, I guess it's necessary because, you know, there's him hitting rock bottom. And then next time we see him, he's he's kind of a, a superstar teacher. He's talking about bricks. And he's, he's pulled himself together. Yeah, Julio, the only times I've really seen a punch like that would be... Uh... And, you know, MMA or boxing when a guy is completely rocked and just out on his feet and just swinging with reckless abandon. But even then, there's a bit more dignity to what they're doing than <laughs> Woody Harrelson here in the rain. And then, as you mentioned, we get like this motivational montage of Woody Harrelson becoming a, a I don't know, is he a professor or a teacher? I couldn't really get a read on the age of the students that he's dealing with, but he has kind of started to build himself back up. And he's teaching classes on architecture. And we get like this really super motivational speech about, uh, you know, it all starts with a brick and then you build something beautiful. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's his first class, like his introductory, like review of the syllabus. But then uh, a bow tie Jimmy King shows up is like, hey, man, she wants a divorce. And so like all this motivation that's built up leads to just Woody Harrelson being taken back down a notch. My next note, Woody is a fucking idiot. That's my next note. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to a wildlife benefit for the local zoo. And as if this movie didn't throw you enough curveballs already, Julio, what's what's the one thing they could do in throwing you just kind of a huh cameo? So it is him. Of the $38 million on this budget, they had <laughs> $8 million left over. They're like, let's just go for something. Okay, so is it John Cleese? I didn't look it up, but... No, it's not John Cleese. It's Sir Bill Connolly. Like he introduces, it's a guy playing himself. Well, he looks like John Cleese with long hair. No, not John Cleese, but Billy Connolly of uh, Muppet Treasure Island. He's in. Uh, he was a voice in Brave, which makes sense since he's Scottish. Uh, Last Samurai, Boondock Saints, Mrs. Brown, Indecent Proposal, The Hobbit, being listed here amongst his his notable. Um, entries into the film genre and a stand-up comedian but my whole thing is like i was familiar with billy Connolly here um vaguely but what a random ass cameo to have here and then they kind of just let him do his own shtick linoraming his entire yeah. auction uh, speech this whole scene actually that it was like 90 minutes long because they just let him get up there and riff so for this charity bid here, John Gage ends up bidding $50,000 to save 
this hippo or buy this hippo, sponsor this hippo, whatever they're doing. And then Woody Harrelson just goes $1 million, like he's Dr. Evil or something, <laughs> and ends up dropping a, all of their money on this hippo only for him to go over and sign the divorce papers in the rain. But I think I, like I get it. You know, it's it, you kind of have to split the difference. Um, this is him kind of growing up in the sense that he's regained the confidence to face off against Robert Redford. This is not a move that the Woody Harrelson from the beginning of the movie would have been able to pull. And he basically he he has one goal above all others. He's finally playing the game the way that Redford plays it. Right, his goal is to get the me more back, but he's not going to get the me more back keeping the million dollars. At this point, yeah. you know, money-wise, that's not competition with Redford. And on top of that, Redford has played his cards in a way that keeping the money just makes Woody Harrison look bad. So instead, what he does is he uses the money to make Redford look bad. Because he makes him look like an asshole. <laughs> Redford is bidding. He, he's in a bidding war with some lady. And they're just increasing, you know, by $10,000 each. And then Harrelson comes in and for the only time in the movie... When he swings his dick, his dick happens to be bigger than everything else. Yes, it's dumb, you know, because he probably could have gone with 500,000 and still kind of like make his point. <laughs> but I, I appreciate the symbolism, especially because it works. You know, it's it's the the combination of like, hi, I'm back. I'm no longer drunk. I look like I got my shit together. Here's a million dollars. Here's a hippo because I'm buying it for you, Demi. And I'm going to go ahead and sign the papers. So now the ball's on your on your court. It was it was good. I think that considering how much of an idiot Woody Harrelson has been throughout the entire movie and how much respect we've lost for him, you kind of needed this sort of misguided hero moment to get us back on his side. I can accept that. But yeah, like you said, he could have just been like $100,000 and they still would have had no money problems for years to come. But <laughs> I guess love trumps all. Signs of divorce papers. They have like their longing embrace and bringing it back to the Wikipedia, the final entry on the plot synopsis, because it sums it up better than I could. Realizing that Diana will never love him the way she loves her husband, Gage lies to her that she is merely the latest member of his million dollar club of women. Seeing through his deception, she gratefully ends their relationship. Before parting ways, he gives her his lucky coin, which is revealed to be double headed. So taking it back to like he was going to have sex with her no matter what when they flip the coin yep i mean who is this guy fucking harvey dent <laughs> uh, diana returns to the pier where david proposed to her seven years earlier finding him there repeating their unique declaration of love they join hands so yeah robert redford's just like well this isn't going to work out he starts to make up this lie <laughs> like a parent who forgot to put money under their kid's pillow because the tooth fairy was supposed to come like, well, the tooth fairy hit traffic, you know, that type of shit. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, yeah, you're part of the million dollar club. He and gets love. Like, right. Shackleford. Yeah. <laughs> Shackleford's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. The million dollar club. Ridiculous. And then, of course, she gives him a one last kiss. And she runs off and like uh, she gets out of the limo and goes and catches a bus. And we get this awesome shot of robert redford just kind of watching her go with a smile on his face do you know what i could have used here is the hand motion of the camera that kirsten dunst does in elizabeth town (laughs) 
Robert Redford just snapping that one last moment would have been perfection. He did the next best thing, though. He he told uh, Shackleford that he let her go because she would never look at him the way that she looked at Woody Harrelson, which which was the secret origin of that meme of like find somebody that looks at you the way that. <laughs> This movie contributed more than anyone really truly knows or appreciates. Yeah, it, it did. But do you know what? What I really appreciate here is that it wasn't just about Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson growing up. Uh, Redford had an arc too. Redford learned the true meaning of love. Of Christmas. <laughs> Christmas and love. I mean, he, he literally, he learned that you, after all, you can't buy everything. He he starts the movie believing that everybody has a price, that money can get him everything he wants. When Demi Moore says not everything is for sale, he's like, yes, yes, it is. Everything. And then at the end, he realizes that actually, no, money can't buy you love. For everything else, you can have MasterCard, but not for love. As the Beatles once said, money can't buy me love. Can't buy me love, no. <laughs> How much money did the Beatles make enough to buy love (laughs) (laughs) there's a there's a deleted scene that i don't know if if this came up on your research uh, which is actually the first time that you see robert redford before demi moore spots him looking at her where he's just like he's watching her kind of like stealing the chocolates and he kind of like elbows the guy that's next to him and he goes i'll buy that for a dollar I said on Twitter that I was going to make that damn joke, and now I have. So we can move Save on to the real best. talk. <laughs> Save the best for last. Yep. All right, let's move on to real talk. Dude, you got to tell me what happened on that boat. David, don't do tell it. me don't what don't happened on that this. boat. Why? Because I want to know. All right, I'll tell you. You know what? The man was a fucking stallion, David. Is that what you want me to say? We did it all night long. Does that do it for you? Is that the truth? Oh, the truth. You don't want the fucking truth. You want me to lie. You want me to say he's awful. So you know what? I'm going to tell you he's awful, and you won't believe me. How can I win? Just tell me the truth, Dave. It was sex, David. Just sex, not love. Just sex. And was it good sex? Don't do this, David. Can you just tell me that, Dee? Was it good? What are you hesitating for? Just tell me. Was it good? Was it good? Was it good? Yes. All right. We are back. But before we head into real talk, it's our new, uh, I guess, freshly named segment, PP, which stands for (laughs) Patron Pitch. This is where we tell you what's going on in our patron. First of all, welcome new patrons to Willis, the other half of uh, Draft Zero, the yeah. wonderful screenwriting podcast. So welcome, Stu. Now that you're a patron, you uh, join the ranks of the Chosen. Yeah, on our Patreon, you get access to exclusive episodes, you know, whatever gets cut from the episodes uh, here, you know, be it just complete random tangents or whatnot. We started recording this uh, right after the news about Gina Carano broke, so... No tangents about that yet, maybe on future episodes to keep y'all tantalized. Um, Get access to our show notes. And also, as part of a Patreon pledge, uh, you get the ability to kind of tell us what to do. Get to request episodes, be it through Contrarian's Canon or those exclusive episodes on Patreon. Julio, I know it's the $1, $3, $5, and $10 tier. How does that break down? Is it, uh, you know them better than I do. (laughs) It's uh, Travoltis, Winonis, Embrys, and Gads. 
Just go to uh, patreon.com slash contrarian prime, take a look at the tiers, see which one interests you, which one fits your contrarian's needs best, and just sign up. Uh, Absolutely. We will be very grateful. For the price of a hot and spicy McChicken, you can get exclusive access to Patreon, <laughs> uh, to contrarian's lore. It's healthier too. Mm. Now, we have one of the things that we offer is the extended plug segment in which we uh, expand on things that we're plugging on the main show. What are you plugging this time, Alex? I don't know if it's going to be so much of a plug as just a dissertation. No, um, I just watched. <laughs> Are you going to grab a brick? Just- <laughs> I just watched Chinatown for the first time, and I feel like I have kind of some mixed emotions. I wanted to talk to you about uh, and see if I'm if they're completely warranted. No grounding. Yeah, warranted. <laughs> I mean, it's Chinatown. It's good. I'm not going to like shit on Chinatown. I'm not trying to sell it to be like, ooh, it's not like a YouTube thumbnail. Can you believe what he said? It's just <laughs> I have some conflicting emotions about it that I was going to talk, uh, discuss with you, knowing that you had seen it before and also that we typically see fairly eye to eye on film. So uh, on my end of things, I'm going to bring Chinatown to the table and just discuss uh, my thoughts after my first viewing of it. And yes, I know it's. Quite ridiculous. I do a film podcast and have done it for six years, and I just recently saw Chinatown. But it's the way it goes sometimes. Julio, what are you? Uh, I'm going to guess a documentary is what you're going to talk about. Uh, you guessed wrong, my friend. Oh. Actually, documentary wasn't even my first choice because my original plan was to, speaking of uh, embarrassing blind spots, my, my original plan was to finally watch The Exorcist so we could talk about it on the extended plugs version but uh that didn't happen although that was documentary related because uh our friend and patron ben he mentioned that he had watched a documentary about william fritkin and i wanted to watch it but i'm like i cannot watch it without at least watching the exorcist um so that's that's in the back burner that will happen hopefully soon what i ended up doing is uh watching michael mann's thief which is his first movie and it's a uh, very interesting crime drama, I guess you would call it. Um, are you a Michael Mann fan? Are you familiar with filmography? Not too much. Not at all. Michael Mann? Didn't he direct Ali? Yes. Yeah. Ali, Heat. Most people are, are big fans of Heat. Yes, Heat. Uh, what else did he do? I know I've seen some, uh, Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the Insider. Another mm. Pacino joint. Um so I'll be talking about Thief. You'll be talking about Chinatown. A grand time will be had. Uh, and if if you're a lucky patron, you'll have access to it. So once again, patreon.com slash Prime. Join the fun. Join the resistance. Join the resistance. Uh, and now we can go to Real Talk. We can. My last note. I already put my notebook away for the evening. But my last note said, fuck this movie. That's what my, <laughs> how I ended my... Uh, journaling on this indecent proposal released on april 7th of 1993 with a budget of 38 million so hair under 40 and uh a box office return of nearly 270 million so that's uh (laughs) this is what the the world wanted looks like the breakdown (laughs) was about 106 million in the u.s and then 160 internationally so i mean it's not surprising yeah, I was about to say I could say fuck this movie, but this is definitely what people were yearning for. I mean the the titillation of the, and the, you know the tawdry nature of the sex and the teasing was always big in the early '90s. And uh, I mean, you got fucking 
Robert Redford, Woody Harrelson, Demi Moore. Uh, I believe Woody was coming off a white men can't jump. So he had a lot of hype coming in. Robert Redford's fucking Robert Redford. And <laughs> Demi Moore. What did she ghost? have? A uh, few good men. Was what oh, she, wow. Yeah. Ghost and a few good men would have been the big ones that she was writing into this with. And then she followed this up with disclosure. She followed this up by <laughs> giving fucking Michael Douglas dome on film. So <laughs> she committed to the the sexual the 90s path. Yeah. Yeah. And uh so first time seeing this. 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's being a bit generous. And uh, wow. Let's see. The film received generally negative reviews from critics at the time of release. Gene Siskel gave the film thumbs down. Roger Ebert, however, gave it a thumbs up. What? <laughs> uh, Susan Susan Faludi, a feminist writer, objected to the movie's positioning of the female character. Another feminist characterized it as a women in prison film. Today, as we mentioned, it maintains a 35% rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on its 46 reviews. The consensus reads, lurid but acted with gusto, and decent proposal has difficulty keeping it up beyond its titillating premise. Keeping it up as in its erection? I would hope not. I imagine <laughs> that uh, both Woody and Robert Redford were H-A-R-D when, the, the, when duty called. Real quick... Before I throw it to you for your quotes here, I read something. Do we see any type of like sexual activity with Robert Redford? I thought he was fully clothed throughout all portions of this movie. That is my recollection. Having okay. seen the movie as recently as last night. Yes. <laughs> as long as there are no follow-up questions. Yes. Because um, <laughs> one of the things I read was that uh, Randy West, who was a an adult actor, was Robert Redford's body double. And I'm like, for what? But <laughs> the R-rated cut that only exists on VHS. I know Randy West because uh, it was probably in high school. He was in one of the uh, action films that I had in my rotation. Uh, it was him and Asia Carrera, which this means nothing to you, Julio. But to, to some people listening, even though they may not admit it, they know what that means. And at one point, she's like, you have such a nice cock. And he says, thank you. I'm down to my last one. And I thought that was so funny then. And that is still a funny line now. So anytime I see Randy West's name, I bring that up. So <laughs> now with that out of the way, what were the esteemed film critics that actually liked this movie saying about it, Julio? Real question was, what were the conversations between Robert Redford and Randy West like? <laughs> uh, what's your short game like? Just... <laughs> no, I, I would uh, imagine like Randy West would come in and just knew Robert Redford from like his most obscure movie and name that. And was like, yeah, man. It's like, yeah, hey, a lot, you know, a lot of people like the natural, but I'm trying to think of what is what is his most obscure Okay, he was in a, a TV movie in 1960 called The Iceman Cometh. So we'll just say that Randy West is like, man, I loved you as Don Parrott in The Iceman Cometh. <laughs> and Redford's like, uh, thank you, I guess. <laughs> they left the set of this like uh, Cliff Booth and uh, Rick Dalton. They were just best <laughs> friends when it was all over. Um all right, so back to Rotten Tomatoes. Back to serious stuff. Uh, yeah, a handful of critics actually gave this a fresh review. 
Ryan Cracknell from Movie Views says, A film that is at times laughable, yet at the same time, over 15 years after its release, its premise is still up for debate and discussion. Well, thank God for that, because we're about to milk that premise <laughs> for debate and discussion for the next 40 minutes at least. Yeah. I don't know that that makes it a good movie, though. That <laughs> <laughs> just makes it a conversation starter. Uh, Rob Gonzalez from eFilmCritic.com says, It pulls us in on the nudge-nudge, wink-wink strength of its premise. But what it does with that premise is more than Hollywood usually manages. Uh... I think even in the 90s, that's kind of a disingenuous statement. I think Hollywood usually manages a lot more. Yeah. Finally, John Lapp from Apollo Guide. The melodrama of Indecent Proposal is a throwback to Douglas Sirk's brand in that it seeks to subvert the status quo rather than support it, offering a biting criticism of contemporary marriage. And this is why I thought that maybe there was a chance that you might actually like this, Alex. I, I thought that there was a chance that you would tell me, you would feed me some bullshit line about how this is uh, a homage to old Hollywood, <laughs> to old romance. No, thank you. Uh, a reimagining of old Hollywood tropes. Well, but, but no, it's going to be a different kind of real talk, apparently. We should make something, uh, I should, I should say, make this uh, clear right off the bat. Your engagement and your ability to potentially fall for that love story in this would hinge greatly upon whether or not you find the premise of this movie insulting or ridiculous. Because I could see some people delicately word this here. (laughs) I would greatly imagine the person I choose to live my life with uh, whenever that day may come. And I would agree that if someone offered a million dollars for such a thing, be it me or that person uh, or my partner, it would warrant discussion. And it would like, it's such a ridiculous thing. It's a million (laughs) dollars. And then if we were to go through with it, basically iron out everything ahead of time. And also (laughs) like the jealousy thing, I guess, like I was saying, I kind of started to realize that when we were in Contrarian's Corner, you kind of opened my eyes to that, that the jealousy is because they've only ever been with each other. When I was 19, yeah, I was really jealous. I was a jealous boyfriend. I don't really, like, my most recent relationships, I, I don't care if someone tells my girlfriend she's cute or, um, you know, tries to hit on her or something if the person i'm with i choose to put my trust in and they tell me you know nothing's going on i'm gonna choose to believe that whereas like woody harrelson getting all jealous throughout this and then like them living these lives as though they don't have a million dollars it became so (laughs) ludicrous to me with the way i viewed the movie that i was just like this is so stupid so i had no time to even try to accept the love story that was at hand I th- I thought the premise for me, 33 year old me thinking about being in that situation. Uh, I just found the movie to be insulting of the audience's intelligence <laughs> and trying to manipulate with these emotions of P- these, this couple that's has a bevy of real problems in front of them in their thirties acting like a couple that's 16 and in high school. It's just so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Well, but see, I can buy, not that I'm going to defend this movie. I mean, we're on the same page. This movie's bad. Um, 
I, I think that the way it irritates me is different than the way it irritates you because I I am down for kind of a uh deconstruction of the the wide-eyed love story of a young couple. I'm okay with that. I'm like, yeah, sure. You show me how uh this billionaire comes into this couple's life, makes them an offer that fucks them up, and then their marriage falls apart uh because of it. That's that's a fucking interesting movie. That's a great premise. I I I think I don't think the the premise of this movie is bad or offensive. I think that the way it's executed is pretty bad and you know, at times offensive. But the the idea, like the the germ of that, you know, there's a reason why it's it's a conversation starter. <laughs> like we said, you know, because what would you do if Robert Redford, you know, if you're you're having financial trouble, Robert Redford shows up and it's like, hey, a million dollars to sleep with your spouse. Well, okay, well, how you act, how you take it, that definitely determines your character. And how you handle the aftermath also determines your character. And if you and your spouse were not on the same page, then of course there's going to be conflict. I mean, that's that's that has potential. Uh, the problem is that this movie is trying to be a fairy tale. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. work at all. <laughs> you cannot. I'm not saying that you couldn't end with Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore making it back to a a happy relationship, but. You cannot but do it, it the way that like this movie does. Fucking <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Like the sun <laughs> comes out, and you know that that would have been great. We made the joke. Me and my sister when we were watching it. The Disney joke. Like when she comes back the day after spending the night with Robert Redford, if she had like come in like dancing and like birds were flying behind her and whistling. <laughs> it's so yeah. stupid. And yeah, there is the. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but while it's fresh in my head, just like I mentioned, or I. I I said a few minutes ago, you know, the idea of, well, if I was in this situation, but the main thing is, and this is where all that valid criticism comes in for this movie. If that situation ever happened with me, it's her choice, his choice, whoever is being propositioned for something like this. It's their choice. If they want to make that, then they can circle me in and how it would affect me. Uh, Or if, you know, if the offer was me, it was my partner. You know what I mean? It's that person's choice. So the, I can understand that criticism coming in of like this whole idea of the woman doesn't really have a say in it and she feels pressured into it or whatever. Uh, obviously that lens wasn't as widely used as it is now, but that part's offensive to it. Also like the ridiculousness of the story, but then also like the, I guess they try to make Robert Redford kind of a good guy though. when he's like, you know, anything you do tonight is going to be your choice. But still, it's just... It's... it's Yeah, it's insane. I think, honestly, Alex, I, I wish the movie had been, if nothing else, you know, it had committed to being insensitive to Demi Moore's needs. Because it doesn't even do that. It's even worse. You can feel throughout the movie how they are trying to give her some sort of agency. They're trying to make it look like, no, look, she has a say. Because she brings it up. And she stands up to Robert Redford up to a point and she goes and then she ends up Redford. dating him and, oh. exactly exactly oh. it, it's like no <laughs> it's all it, clearly it's all fake it's all just a facade because really it, the end game for you was to get her today the moment that you have her and it's not even like Redford does anything you know he doesn't walk into a burning building and save a child and that's when she realizes that he's a good guy he tells a really lame story about a girl he met 
on the bus, on the train, wherever. Yep. You know, that's not it it doesn't justify the memoir dating this guy that literally ruined her marriage. <laughs> just it's so crazy and the only reason that they have her go that way is so that they can stretch the movie and she can have a reunion with Woody Harrelson later on it it doesn't you know the the adult version of this movie doesn't show us Robert Redford again it's like he comes in he has sex with her he pays Woody Harrelson and he's gone from the movie and then <laughs> this couple has to deal with that shit in the real world you know it and that's fine i mean you know i can I'm okay. I think that the the decisions that they make and the way that they go about this whole deal is really stupid, and it's not the way that I would go about it. Yeah. But I can understand. I, I I can I can buy it because I'm like, okay, well, you're basically telling me that this is this is who they are, and this is this is how they act. And and again, I can buy it if because it's it's a young couple that's never had to go through something like this. Uh, you know, I but think that's that maybe the, like the point that makes me so mad is because they're not young; <laughs> they're in their right. like early thirties. Like uh, it's at that age. Okay, again, me, you, this situation right here happens. If it happened, it would happen, and that would be that, and it would just be like, okay, now we have to deal with it, but we have all this money. In this, it's like it happens and now we have to talk about it afterwards and neither of us want the money. And it's trying to do this really weird thing of like, you know, tell this really lifetimey love story. Like the fucking cover, the poster for this movie is like a cover of a romance novel at the time and try to make it seem like, again, the stupid thing about her teaching classes or doing the citizenship classes and them, refusing to address their fiduciary problems because of love or something it's i i hate to be that guy but it's a movie like halfway through i was like grow up and robert redford is i guess you can't vilify his character just because he's just like you said a rich guy with balls and just he knows that he can spare a million dollars here or there. Just the premise of this movie makes me angry because there's a really interesting story uh, in a really like dark way because this movie mm-hmm, tries mm-hmm. to keep it really light and fluffy. But the idea of if we take these people's ages back 10 years or something like that when they really are 19 and, you know, a situation like that. Oh, again, dude, yeah, a hundred percent. It's again, that's not. I'm not like getting my rocks off over here, you know, <laughs> typing with one hand thinking about this, but the idea of you could make this story interesting and dark and brooding. And again, neither of us have any knowledge about the book, so I don't know if that's potentially they tried to make the story a bit more dark and brooding. Who knows? But the way they tell this story for you and me watching it, grown ass men, it's just <laughs> like, fuck you. This isn't a real problem. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I can cut him some slack on the on the age of the characters because because they needed it to be Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore's age. Well, would you say they're what in their thirties when this movie takes place? I only say that because the actors themselves were in their thirties. I think that's what it's trying to say, though. I mean, maybe the movie's saying late twenties, which is still you know it's too old on average. But I could say you know I've met people that are in their late twenties or their early thirties that are sheltered enough because they've never gone through real hardship you know Uh so so the way that they think about the world is it it just shows that you know there's like they just can't fathom 
facing the, the kind of stuff that you know this couple faces here you know like oh well this guy has never he's been lucky enough that he found the person he wanted to marry when he was really young and he's never had to deal with with jealousy like because she adores him and this is the first time that that he's had to deal with that it's possible you know because they've if when they established that they had you know, up till the recession, they were doing fine and they they kind of lived in their own world and all that stuff. I mean, I don't think the movie, look, I'm, I'm connecting dots for the movie because I don't think the movie does a good job of establishing that, but it it's the only way that I can make it make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so let's say that I can get past all that. Well, the movie that they make with that setup is still bad. So it, it's, it's all for nothing. Uh, I, I think that the, the Redford character, when it gets icky is yes, when they start dating. I mean that whole sequence with the when she's teaching the citizenship classes and he comes in and he's flirting with her. That's out of a romantic comedy. That's no longer the the movie that yes. we were watching. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just gross. He's like there, and you can feel that the movie wants us to find him charming, you know. And then he gives the monologue, and now the movie wants us to like him. It's just it, that's when I think that it gets gross. I don't know about offensive. But but definitely just icky, uh, as in like the movie is not aware of how much it's turning the audience off. And yet, I will tell you, I know at least two people that think this movie is very romantic, and they cry at the end. So no, <laughs> you don't know them. Oh my <laughs> they live god! In Peru. Okay. But yeah, they they exist. So you know. I guess if you if you buy through all that bullshit, by the time that you get at the to the end, you're just happy that that they came together, they found each other again. Alex, they grew that up. That ending is so fucking stupid too, where he's like making up the million dollar club, and again, like I said, it's just like <laughs> it reminded me of that South Park where. Um, have you ever seen the South Park where the kids of South Park find out that Slash isn't a real person, like he's like Santa Claus? Slash and- the the Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Good yeah. Player? Yeah. Okay. I take it you haven't seen it because it, nope. it, you're just like, this sounds really stupid. But it, like all South Park bits, it's brilliant if you see it in execution. But it reminded me of that because like the parents of South Park are trying to explain to the kids, oh, you know, Slash, you know, he he's more of a feeling than a real thing. <laughs> and Robert Redford here, one of the most celebrated, greatest American actors of all time. You're asking to like bullshit his way through a story like he's making he's doing like uh, improv god it's <laughs> offensive offensively bad give me jade back are you telling me you prefer jade to this one yes yeah yeah, yeah. i would much Holy rather watch shit. jade than this jade has like comedy unintentional comedy to it this like it started and i was like yeah this is all right and then I genuinely thought Oliver Platt was funny, and I thought his character mm-hmm. was really good. Yeah, I like him a lot. Possible yeah. contender for the Embry, but it's just not good, man. He he does not he does not pull enough weight to offset all the other shit. I think that the reason that I am inclined to give this one the edge over Jade and barely is just because I do think that the premise is interesting. The premise alone is more interesting than anything that happens in Jade. Jade is just a standard, uh, I guess, thriller, procedural, with just like nasty sex thrown on top. 
this one, it errs the other way. It really, <laughs> considering the premise, this is pretty PG-13, I felt. Were you were you expecting uh, something a little more explicit? Because I certainly did. I, I told you, I the only other time that I've watched this movie, kind of, was an edited version. And my assumption was that part of the edits for TV was just cutting all the, most of the sex stuff. But now I don't think they did. I, You know, it's like you have the, the sex scene in the kitchen, you have the sex scene with the money, and that's about it. And considering it's a movie that sells itself so hard on a premise that is all about sex, then it's it's kind of weird. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's uh, I mean, that's part of the difference being here. This is an AAAAA plus, you know, level cast here versus Jade, which was still <laughs> kind of some people finding their footing. I mean, there was that really quick interstitial of Woody Harrelson licking to me more his ass. I was like, Whoa. Uh, but that, <laughs> yeah, but that's like blink and you miss it. Yeah. That's the whole point. I saw that and I was like, Oh man, this is like the first five minutes. We're in for a bumpy ride here, folks. Buckle up. <laughs> uh, some of what I did read revolved around that. Uh, the participation of Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson about the sex scenes and whatnot. And, uh, Woody wasn't terribly all about him and Demi Moore, I guess, had in her contract. She had the right to ax anything that she didn't want in the movie. And um, fortunately, and I guess fortunately, she saw the final product and she's like, oh, no, that's all fine. And then, I mean, this was fucking what, three years before striptease when she was out there just barren at all. She should have said, can you ax the ending? <laughs> <laughs> can you just not release this movie? <laughs> Can you ask the release date? <laughs> I, I we joke, but again, it, it landed on the better side of three hundred million dollars. So yeah, good for yeah. them. Here's my other memory of indecent proposal. I remember the buzz and the discussion, the debate around it, the controversy, uh, because I remember reading this article, and this was, of course, I was living in Peru, so I was reading reports from reports. You know, just people kind of like because I don't think anybody cared in Peru. But mm-hmm. in the States, you know, that the reports were that people were up in arms, uh, certain people that were offended by by the premise of the movie. They were saying, yeah, so it's, an, uh, it's radar. And yeah, you know, our kids can't go watch it in theaters. But that doesn't mean that they don't hear about the movie, that the uh, the premise of the movie is enough to corrupt their young minds. <laughs> so the example that somebody was putting there was like, yeah, you know, kids in school, now they're asking, hey, would your mom go for it if they offer her a million dollars? It was such a more innocent time that that was that that people were up in arms about the marketing of this movie. When now, I guess you could say that there there are PG thirteen movies that are going to, I guess, if you find that a, a corruption of your child's mind, like there are PG thirteen movies that are doing far worse right now. <laughs> And it's only been like, what, 20 years or so? I guess closer to 30. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it, the early 90s still, that was the, the 90s by no means are like an innocent time. But there's still, especially when it came to like infidelity and shit like that, there was still a, a general sensitivity around it that shit really dissipated in the early 2000s. So I, I could see that. Yeah, but it, it's such a. I guess it speaks to the one thing that this movie has going for it. Again, going back to the premise, because something like Jade, which is obviously something like okay, so you have your teenage kid, your fourteen-year-old, fifteen-year-old kid, and you know which movie is gonna 
fuck him up more in decent proposal or jade right and i guess on a visceral level jade is more you know what the fuck's going on what's up with the long pubes and all that but <laughs> uh but you can't summarize jade in like one line it's not the kind of thing that you're really gonna like pick up from from a tv ad or, or from a trailer and then just go on to to talk about and speculate but something like a decent proposal it just it boils down to such a simple concept uh you know, hey, if Robert Redford offered a million dollars to sleep with your spouse, what would happen? That's all you have to say. And then just like everybody grabs the ball and runs. So there's something to that. Uh, again, I, I think that they fumbled the, execu- the execution, but they had the, the, the an original point to begin with. But then my other thought was that if you gender flip this movie, uh, one, it automatically becomes a comedy. If it's a billionaire woman offering a million dollars to sleep with Woody Harrelson. I, I think that it instantly, just because of, you know, our societal norms and whatever, it just, it's it suddenly becomes a funny premise. Uh, and it also becomes a short film because I think that they, you know, the way that the dynamics would play off, it's just like, you just resolve everything within 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, that's That has nothing to do with the quality of the movie. But I still I find it kind of fascinating that you can just do a simple change and suddenly it's just so different uh, in the way that we perceive it and the way that it plays. But still, yeah, I agree with you. It's a bad movie. <laughs> so not necessarily related to what you had just said, Julio, but one thing this movie, this viewing made me realize uh, or get, I guess, was a scene from Kingpin because Kingpin is next to Dumb and Dumber, probably my favorite Fairly Brothers movie. And, you know, Woody Harrelson stars in that. You've seen Kingpin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I finally saw it a couple of years ago. So there's a part in it that I thought was hilarious, but never fully got the reference until like halfway through this. I was like, oh, like when they get to Vegas and uh, Randy Quaid and Woody Harrelson are like at the casino and Chris Elliott has this cameo where he's this like millionaire high roller and he just walks up to uh Woody Harrelson and Randy Quaid and he's like I will pay you one million dollars cash to have sex with your friend but he's meaning like for Woody Harrelson to fuck Randy Quaid and and then you know there's like a little discussion and uh then it just cuts to (laughs) Woody Harrelson throwing a bunch of cash up in the air and Randy Quaid's laying on the bed with this giant ice pack on his ass it's (laughs) So absurd and all very vulgar comedy, but I finally got that this was that was a reference to indecent proposal. So got a, a hearty chuckle out of that. Um, I mean, you know, just kind of wrapping up here with this, it, it, it all it is what it is. Woody Harrelson's actually pretty good in it. Like I said, I like Oliver Platt and Demi Moore. You know, she I think sometimes can come across as fairly ranged with her acting, but all the performances in this are mm-hmm. they're delivering what the movie is asking of them. It's just what the movie's asking and doing overall. Isn't that strong? Yeah. I, I think it's a shame that they waste the performances in such a weak story because really when they're, when they get into it, especially the, the, you know, what we call their Oscar scenes in Contrarian's Corner, the acting is good. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. kind of a shame that it's in service of, of, weak plot but i i totally buy 
that Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore are in pain <laughs> and that they regret what happened and all that. You know, it's just the acting is not the problem. Uh, I mean, Redford is kind of a, I wouldn't say sleepwalking through this, but I, I don't know, maybe I am underestimating how much work it is to to be charming under these circumstances. But, you know, to me, it feels like he doesn't have as much to do as the other two. How would you have felt about the acting if it had gone as it was originally designed and it would have starred Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman with Warren Beatty as the billionaire? I mean, the same. <laughs> They're, all three of them are actors I like a lot. Uh, doesn't help the script at all, though. Nope, it doesn't. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, they're all being in stinkers, so it's not like, oh, well, they would have made it better. They would have demanded a better movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. No, I, actually, here's the other thing. that The other thought I had was that the movie would be more interesting also if you don't have someone like Robert Redford as the billionaire, because that kind of makes it a little easier, because it's Robert Redford, you know? But what if you had somebody that's not traditionally attractive, you know, what if you have somebody that's not a movie star in <laughs> playing the role of the millionaire? Uh, what if you had Randy Quaid as a millionaire? You know, and and now it's just like, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but do you know what I mean? Now it's just not that. Oh, do I take a million dollars and go have sex with this guy? That well, he looks better than any other person that I've had sex with, so we can kind of justify it. As have opposed Jason to Jason like, Alexander in 1993 play the role of the billionaire. There you go. It instantly makes the movie more interesting, but yeah, no, I, it's just, yeah, it's not, it's, I go back to like, they, they try to make it a fairy tale and it doesn't work. I agree. It does not work. I'm trying to remember now what I gave Jade, because this is just a, a scotch below it. I think I gave it a D because I, I don't, I don't think I gave Jade an F, but whatever the case, this is below Jade for me in terms of uh, if they're both in front of me and the night calls for, I have to watch one or the other, I'm going to watch Jade. That being said, the acting in this is better. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably as history has gone here with our show. I think that's something that uh, has been evident is that if a bad movie has bad acting, I'm way more forgiving of it than if a bad movie has good acting. Cause then it just makes me frustrated and wish it like, I wish the movie was better if that makes any sense. Like the, yeah. the idea, the idea of you have all these parts here that could work really well. Why didn't you do something better with it is way more frustrating to me than uh, the Friday the 13th part seven, where it was good as it was ever going to be. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's why I would be more inclined to maybe give this a higher grade uh, and say like a D plus. But again, because of how frustrated I found myself at the end of it, I really have no intention of watching it again. Did you, uh, in your research, did you discover that this movie is a Razzie winner? Oh, yeah. I had that down. I meant to read that in the first portion. It uh, was nominated for seven Razzies in 94, including Worst Actor Robert Redford. No. Worst Actress Demi Moore. No. Worst Director and Worst Original Song. I can go with that. And it ultimately won three. Uh, worst picture, uh, worst supporting actor for Woody Harrelson, and worst screenplay. So, I agree with uh, the worst screenplay, screenplay for part. sure. <laughs> um, that's weird that they would put Harrelson as supporting and Redford as main actor. 
That's the uh, Django Unchained thing. <laughs> um, well, uh, I am a little more positive on it than Jade. That's, I mean, you know, we're in the doldrums here. This is just bottom of the barrel comparisons. It's just they're both terrible movies. But I am, I am unlikely to rewatch either of them. But I am more likely <laughs> to have a conversation about. A conversation that will last more than a couple of minutes about uh, an about indecent proposal with Jade. I'll just tell you, yeah, that movie's fucking weird, and maybe I'll make a couple of jokes about Chaz Palminteri. But indecent proposal, I can be like, oh yeah, you know, that's a movie where Robert Redford offers a million dollars to sleep with Demi Moore. How crazy is that? And maybe that will springboard into a conversation that's way more interesting than the movie. Uh, so, if nothing else, I give it that. And like you said, the acting is good. So I don't remember how much I remember how many stars I gave Jade, but I know it was not more than one and a half, and that's what I'm giving Indecent Proposal. Fair enough. And for uh, posterity, uh, Indecent Proposal when it won Best Picture at the 14th Annual Golden Raspberry Awards, it beat out Body of Evidence, Cliffhanger, Last Action Hero, which fuck that because that movie's <laughs> awesome, and. We just can't seem to escape it. Sliver. <laughs> Would you say this movie's worse than Sliver, Alex? No. No. <laughs> and to demonstrate how bad Sliver is, to immediately contradict my point from a few moments ago, I would watch this before I watch Sliver. Because Sliver is <laughs> not even enjoyably bad. It's just bad. And Woody Harrelson did beat out uh, Tom Berenger for worst supporting actor. So there you go. <laughs> just wrong choices all over. Berenger <laughs> deserved that award. Oh, yeah. The rapey Kramer, as we dubbed him. <laughs> all right. Part two of our sexy thriller arc is concluded. Um, I guess it's an arc. It's kind of a parceled, stagnated arc. And I guess it's a sexy thriller. Well, yeah. There is Woody Harrelson licking Demi Moore's ass, so that constitutes his sex. <laughs> and there's like a scene where he drunkenly tries to fight Robert Redford, so there's your thriller. <laughs> so, Julio, uh, not next, but next in our sexy thriller uh, chronology is Showgirls. Are we moving there next? That's correct. That's our That's our March movie in this sexy thriller arc. Haven't seen it. Oh, boy. Uh, are are we in for a treat? Much like I said at the end of Jade, how could it get worse? <laughs> but that is yet to come uh, immediately on deck, uh, currently in the hole. What's coming up, Julio? Uh, so we're closing down February with uh, our patron pick for the official feed, which is uh, our patron Ben picking Sling Blade, which is also a movie I haven't seen. And you haven't either, right, Alex? Speaking of Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, unexpectedly getting back-to-back Billy Bob Thornton appearances, which is something I don't ever see myself really complaining about. But Sling Blade is on deck. That's going to be a first-time viewing for both Julio and myself. So that should definitely lead to an interesting discussion. Yeah, and either before or shortly after Sling Blade, if you're a patron, you will get our aforementioned uh, bonus exclusive uh, on End of Days, which I haven't seen since it came out. So that was before we, we turned a corner into the new millennium. 
I think that was a 1999 release. It was. It was. And yeah, Sling Blade, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. So we're going to be taking Billy Bob down a, and his taters down a peg. I do know that line <laughs> from the movie. All right. So that was a decent proposal. On deck is Sling Blade moving into perennial plugs. We have the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Rodgieser, he did our logo. He did all the graphics on our Patreon page, the graphics on our upcoming merch. Check out his website, mildemonios.pe, for links to all his work. Uh, it's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. He is an author. He's written a whole bunch of zombie novels. He has some new work coming out. Uh, there's this novel, this collection of short stories called uh, Project Cthulhu. Project Cthulhu. Uh, that one's actually going to be translated to English. So if you've been waiting to check out Hans's prose, that's a way to do it. And then, of course, he has his four podcasts, uh, Nación Combi, Marginal, Contantisonante, and Living in Peru. You can find all those um, your podcatchers living in Peru is on iVox. Thank you, Hans, for all your work. And lastly, we want to, as always, give a shout out to Zoe Perez, who helps uh, keep our social media game tight and nice and presentable for you, the masses. Uh, if you haven't already, be sure to go over to Instagram at Contrarian Prime and give us a follow. Uh, of course, you know our Twitter account at Contrarian Prime and then also, the way Facebook works, it isn't an at, is it, Julio? It's like a slash contrarian prime. Yeah, facebook.com slash contrarian prime, because Zuckerberg has to be difficult. Exactly. But in any event, Zoe helps make a lot of really nice graphics, and uh, I always use the word curates our social media game. So, Zoe, as always, much appreciated. With all that being said, that is going to do it for Indecent Proposal. That is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.